This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. What's up, guys? Really grateful you guys are listening to the pod. I would love it if you could take just five seconds to leave a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you might be listening to this. It really goes a long way to spread the message, which would allow me to get better guests to add more value to your life. And if you're one of the special people that have helped spread the word on this podcast, I am deeply appreciative of your support. Enjoy the episode. And why Mars? Like um, for people that aren't aware, like why not, you know, Venus and Moon and, and particularly with Mars, like what, what's the breakdown there of why? Well, Mars, Mars rotates once in about 24 hours. Its axis is tipped like ours is, which means it goes through seasons as we do. Mars has polar ice caps. Um, Venus, you would vaporize within a few seconds of landing there. You, a physical human being, would vaporize. The, the runaway greenhouse effect is scorching. Whereas on Mars, it's very cold, but it's not something a, 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 a spacesuit can protect you from. I mean, I, I started this and I'm like, okay, I was asking, you know, colleagues of mine that are fans of yours. And I'm like, what do you even ask a question to someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson? So I wanted to throw it back to you and say, you know, what's a mystery that's been keeping you up at night in recent times? Uh, I would say more than just in recent times, I generally wonder whether the human species has the capacity, the intellectual capacity as a species to actually figure out how the universe works. <clears throat> so that would include knowing what questions to ask in the first place and possibly maybe we're not smart enough to even know what, well, let me say that differently. It's, can we answer the questions we've already posed? And do we even know that we're posing the right questions? And that's a, you know, you confront that on the on the bleeding edge of scientific research. And for me, it's quite humbling because we're always operating on the assumption that we're intelligent and no other animals are. So we have just the right amount of intelligence to solve all the problems of the universe. That's kind of audacious, actually. Maybe we need a thousand times our intelligence to figure out things that right now we can't. But we're not, we don't entertain that possibility. We are the measure of intelligence on a level where when we look for life elsewhere in the universe, we'll say, let's find other intelligent life as though we are the metric and we'll see if other species live up to that metric rather than we being the lowest point on that pole 
and every other species being vastly more intelligent than we are, and they then not pay any attention to us at all in the way you might walk past a worm on the sidewalk that had just emerged from the morning rain. And you're not wondering, you're not asking yourself, gee, I wonder what that worm is thinking about. This is not a thought. It's a worm and you probably stepped on it. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. We, we could have definitely stepped on it at any point, right? Without right, even being right. noticed. Right. Well, how do we know what questions to ask in the first place? I feel this is a struggle that most people have. You as a scientist need to know where to exactly pinpoint these questions because it leads to getting off the right start in the first place. But it seems like we're trying to seek answers with questions that don't really go anywhere. It's already just people are off to the wrong start. How have you trained yourself to ask the right questions? But you don't know in advance. You don't know what the right questions are. Some people are better at it than others. And I, for me, it's still a mystery why. But if you take Isaac Newton, for example, in his book, Optics, he wrote in 1704, well after he had discovered the laws of gravity and, and motion and optics, I'm sorry, and uh, calculus. So 1704, he writes optics. And over those years, he had these sort of pent up questions that had been needling him. And at the end of the book, there's a whole section just appended to the book and it's called queries. And you read these queries, it's like, oh my gosh, this, I'll give you an example. He says, could the stars in the night sky be just like the sun, except much, much farther away? This is a question he's posing, right? Because it's easy to think, well, our, the sun is special. Yeah. In fact, it's not a star. A star is the dim thing at night. The sun is the sun, right? It's easy to want to believe that everything that's happening around you is just for you. But to say maybe the sun is just like all those other stars pries you off of some mantle where you're standing. And say, oh my gosh, if that's the case, then maybe other stars have other planets and we're not the only star system, solar system in town. So his question, all of his questions ran like that. They were very deep and very insightful. And that surely contributed to what we now think of as his brilliance, having asked the right questions to begin with. Even the questions he couldn't answer were brilliant questions. Today, we seem to be in a mode where people uh, believe that you just align the nouns and verbs in the correct order and you have a question and therefore it's an authentic question. Like, what is the sound of one hand clapping? You know, people, just because you created a sentence with a question mark doesn't mean that question is legitimate in the sense that it is deserving of critical scientific attention to solve. So uh, here's another one, which is easy in retrospect, but maybe at the time, who would have known? If you say, I wonder what kind of cheese the moon is made out of. So you devise all these experiments so you can check for uh, Limburger and, and <laughs> Parmesan and <laughs> cheddar, and you have all these carefully, exquisitely designed experiments only to learn that the moon isn't made of cheese at all. Mm -hmm. So your question made no sense in the context of reality. 
And so you lost a lot of time going there, uh, uh, hiking down that path, yeah. not knowing initially if it's a dead end or not. This initial thing that you talked about, the sound of clapping, this is a knock on philosophy, right? And I know you have an opinion in terms of philosophy being taught in schools or university systems, I guess, that just aren't really useful for at least maybe not the best use of people's times. No, I've never said that ever. Uh, oh, okay. So uh, yeah, I've never is, said is that. misquoting you. Yeah, no, no yeah. What's, uh, there are people who have said that about me. You are uh, accurately quoting them. <laughs> I see. Okay. So this is the problem with, you know, reading headlines and giving, yeah. you know, media outlets, all this control. Okay. So, uh, so here's, here's clear if, I, if I could comment on that. So I was on stage with Richard Dawkins. This is at Howard University. We, we had a program uh, or a, a conversation, a public conversation with each other called the Poetry of Science. It was in a huge auditorium. Thousands of people were there. And we were just talking about the beauty of science and the challenges and the joys and the, um, and the like. And at one point, a chairman of a philosophy department got up and asked, what do we think of philosophy? Because there's pressure on philosophy departments to get rid of them from universities on the grounds that it doesn't contribute to a job later on. Um, it's not useful, this sort of thing. Now, personally, I don't think college has any obligation to be useful. You want to be useful, go to a trade school and learn a trade. But to learn knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge, this is, I think, a very deep, honorable and time, uh, you know, very uh, time honored and and respected enterprise has been going on ever since there's been institutions of higher learning. Yeah. So I never want to say that one shouldn't study something that they didn't previously know about. So, uh, but the conversation then, uh, so I commented, Richard Dawkins had, I'll tell you my comment in a minute. Richard Dawkins noted that evolution by natural selection could have in principle been discovered by a philosopher in an armchair. That's, it's, it's just very simple sort of rational analysis of the survivability of a species in any generation. There's variation in that species and there's an assault on the environment and only some survive. That, you didn't really have to be a biologist to come up with that, but a biologist came up with it. Charles Darwin, who spent his whole life thinking about species. And so this was an occasion where a philosopher might have been able to contribute mightily and didn't. And the argument there is that the philosopher doesn't have a laboratory. They're not leaving the armchair. And if you're not leaving the armchair, there, there's insights that you won't know about or you, you won't uh, you won't be able to feed your creative thinking in the absence of this information that the scientist in the laboratory or in the field is obtaining. Yeah. My comment was very specific. And I said that the history of philosophy and physics, they were one and the same. Our natural philosophers were physicists before the word even became common. And there was a very long, fruitful relationship between 
what we think of today as philosophers and the physical sciences going up to about the turn of the last century um, into what the early in the 1900s. That changed. And what happened was science, the physical sciences, left the world of sort of rational armchair thought. Thus was born quantum physics and relativity. And these are things that don't just naturally extend from just sitting there saying, well, if things move this way and weigh that much, and then they must be this way and that much in this other situation. Quantum physics came from completely out of left field. Mm. Uh, relativity has mind bending consequences to time and space. And in my judgment, the physical sciences parted ways with philosophers. And so I don't know of a single philosopher trained in the 20th century who has made material contributions to the progress of the physical sciences. Yeah. Whereas before then, there were plenty of examples. So there's still all kinds of roles for philosophers in new fields like neuroscience, in, in old fields like political science, you know, political philosophy, religious philosophy, ethical philosophy. There's no end of where we could benefit from philosophers, but we just haven't seen them in the physical sciences. And I think it's for those reasons I gave you. I said all of that on stage. Okay. Yeah. A year later, I'm on a podcast with what's the nerdist? What's his name? Um, uh, nerdist Chris, is his. Uh, uh, Chris Hardwick? No. Yeah, Chris Hardwick. Thank you. Chris Hardwick, right? Yeah. No, you wouldn't know. Uh, Chris Hardwick's <laughs> a nerdist. He had a podcast, and I'm on there, and he learned that I'd majored in physics. So I said, What did you major in? And he said, Oh, philosophy. And, and by the way, he's a stand-up comedian, and I yes. love comedy, and I'm, I hang out with comedians all the time. So I said to him, oh, that can really mess you up. <laughs> sort of, no, he said he started major in philosophy or something. I said, why, that could mess you up. Oh, you start asking questions like, what is the meaning of meaning? And oh, God. Forever. Okay. So that's go. what I said. Well, so what happened was that clip made it to philosophy blogs, and all manner of philosophers... This academic philosophers, students of what decided to attack me, saying I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm, a, and I was so disappointed because at the time that happened, the conversation I had with Richard Dawkins, that had 750,000 views. Mm. Apparently, none of those views were these philosophers <laughs> because <laughs> they kept referencing my playful off the cuff comment with Chris Hardwick. And they were the ones that's, that were uh, putting me in the category of, of some other, some notable people like, like um, Stephen Hawking, who said philosophy's dead. I've never said that. I've never said philosophy's dead. Um, there are too many other places philosophy can, can apply. Just, I just haven't seen it in the physical sciences. So, so, um, so that became its own inner um, trope about what philosophers think of me. That, that's, that's how that became. And they all wrote about, to each other and they're saying, don't you realize that philosophers laid the foundation for calculus and for this? And all their examples come from 19th century and 18th century, yeah. all from the time that I fully said there were great contributions. And none of them were giving examples in, in modern times, of course, because there aren't- I mean, this is, the, this is the problem with just kind of the way things, I mean, thank God for podcasts where there's long form, 
if people are watching it, right? I'm sure these people that are in the media watched your, you know, your, your debate with um, Dawkins, but it, they just decided to ignore it, right? But no, 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 I don't believe that because they, because they only quoted my comments from Chris Hardwick and would put in the link to it. No, I don't believe they, see, this is why I was disappointed. Mm-hmm. They, they saw an easy target for someone who's like famous, right? I'm famous at this point. And yeah. so let's attack the famous guy because he's an idiot without actually doing homework on what the more. F- so I wrote back on one of the blogs. I said, hmm, uh, really, you're going to spend 700 words commenting on my knowledge of philosophy based on a comedic quip in a comedic podcast to a stand up comedian? Really? Yeah. Um, apparently, you must not have been among the three quarters of a million people who saw this other posting. Okay, that is a much more full expression of my views on philosophy. And if you have a criticism, let it be based on that. You don't think they were just three quarters of a million people saw. All right. And and no one came forth with that criticism. You don't think they were just cherry picking specific facts or quotes? They 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 could, but that's irresponsive. These are academic websites. These are. Oh, okay, guys. This isn't like Huffington Post. No, these are. This is. This is philosophy blog. This is right. And uh, my gosh. And so, 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 rather than say, uh, "Wow, does he really feel that way?" Let me look harder to see if it does. No, they just pull it up. I'm talking about blog sites where philosophers talk to each other about philosophical problems of the day. That's where it appeared. Not yeah. Huffington Post, not in a Twitter stream, not anywhere else. So anyway, I spent too much time explaining all that. But I'm just letting <laughs> you know yes. you are accurately quoting people who are ignorant of what I actually think and believe. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say, honestly. Like, there's just so much news out there, so much information. You did a, When you started to become you know, famous, as you mentioned, back in, you know, how, how long would you say like you've been in It's been slow and continuous. So when it reached certain people's thresholds, yep. they would judge, oh, that, that's when you started becoming famous. You know, it's like that's... people moving into a new neighborhood and said, and they say, uh, boy, um, in the years after we moved in, the neighborhood went down. Well, everyone who moved in before you said that about you. <laughs> okay. You're not the, the measure of timelines. Just We're so narcissistic. To... Right, exactly. I mean, it's, it's very human to feel that way, but that doesn't make it correct. Yeah. Uh, so what, what point was I making? Uh, what was I saying? Well, I was just asking, like, what, what was the first oh, oh. time you No, no, no. So it was it's been slow and continuous. And I, I have yeah. metrics for this. So there is no overnight thing. I, I'll give an, a fun example. So I'm on all kinds of TV at this point. Okay. Mm. And interviewed by the evening news. So I get interviewed by the PBS NewsHour. Okay. And this is back when my email was public. And so I got comments. By the way, and I adjust what I say and how I say it based on who I know the audience to be. So the news hour, that's a different audience from Jon Stewart on the, on, you know, on the Daily Show, right? So, so I'm giving my best NPR, you know, PBS news hour reply. Yeah, on, yeah. And so I read the emails and they look really different. Like, there were much bigger words used in these emails than I'd ever seen. <laughs> words that you don't even understand. I know, they're just like, whoa, whoa, this is like a whole other like species of TV watcher. And yeah. one of them said, um, 
well, I really enjoyed what you had to say. You know, you should be on TV more often. <laughs> like, you have no freaking idea. So that's the, that's the, the tribalizing, the stovepiping of yes. people's access to media. He thinks he's, he's discovering me and wants me to then get out more. All right. And or the people will say, well, you come speak to this group that will give you more exposure. It's mm -hmm. like, do you do you really know what's going on? <laughs> so so the exposure is is high and it means there's an extra level of a, accountability and responsibility and duty to make sure that everything I post is like really thought out because to just say cavalier things with that depth and breadth of audience can just be outright irresponsible. Well, this is why I must tick you off when there's people misquoting you and you know, the, you know, how much your your brand and reputation that you've built all this time means means and it just the, well, the good thing about that spreads today. Yeah, the good thing about that is I have enough of a following so that I can post something where more people will see what I post than whoever read the misquoted content. And so it creates a force operating to correct such things as that. I even had a, I wrote an op-ed once and I was going to submit it to the New York Times. I've had some op-eds before. They're very picky, by the way, or at least with what I've sent them. <laughs> Maybe they print all of your op-eds. <laughs> <laughs> they print um, three of mine, then, actually. I don't know, Neil. <laughs> uh, and so I've had like three published out of six or seven that I had submitted. But I've reached a point where I said, hmm, I have more, I have three times the, my Twitter following is three times the size of the New York Times circulation. So I don't need crazy. the platform. That's crazy. To, yeah, I mean, the, the various ways you measure circulation, but just your base paid circulation, because many more people read it that don't pay, right? And so, but just, we have straight numbers paid circulation. So I said, I'll just post it on my own social media. And that's what I did. And then the press picks up on it and the public sees it and reads it. And I'm perfectly happy doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And you lived in New York, pretty much you grew up there. And yeah, I, yeah. I know uh, pretty like much. I actually grew up there, Sagan. born and raised right through high is school. There some, is there something about like scientists, let's say, you know, network effects are exist with Silicon Valley for tech entrepreneurs. And when it comes to entertainment, Los Angeles is the place to be like, is there a place like that for scientists where the best scientists all mingle together because they're not anymore. There yeah, maybe in the past, but today we're all connected. Yeah. You know, the internet is connects us all. And we were connected before the public to each other before the public was connected to each other. Right. right. The World Wide web was invented in Switzerland in, in, the, in the CERN particle accelerator by a computer scientist physicist. So, so we've had this need. My earliest email account was, I think, 1982? 82. So we, we've been connected very early. Not only that, we have many, many, not during COVID, of course, but we have many, many workshops and conferences where we get together. Yeah. So there's probably four a year. There's so many you can't even attend them all. There's two larger society conferences, and usually, depending on how broad your research interests are, there's a specialty workshop, a conference on those topics. So you can stay very well connected to people, and it is that connectivity, as you correctly noted, that feeds, um, the connectivity feeds creativity.
and you get your ideas challenged and you respond and, and, you know, think of it, um, there was a similar gathering of such sort of intellect a thousand years ago in what we call the golden age of Islam, where the library system there and the travelers in Baghdad, travelers came from all different compass directions and they would come through and they'd have ideas pulled from all around the world and they got contested in that spot. And so they're great discovery because if you if your ideas are contested, then you can't ever you won't ever be ossified in it because someone say, wait, I thought about that. And that's not true. Check this out. Here's something that might be true. And this just ratchets up rapidly. And so yeah. great advances in, in astronomy and navigation and math and, and physics and, and physiology all came out of that period. So, uh, yes, I, Silicon Valley might that. have represented that. In, in that modern sense, uh, in the early days. But um, uh, n nowadays, I, I don't know how important that is. Right. Especially I just don't know. Maybe communities. it's the physicality still is important. But however important it is, it's surely less important than it ever was. Yeah. Because I can Zoom call anybody I want. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys have like a WhatsApp group of scientists with like Bill Nye and all the top, <laughs> top, top minds and you guys are just like, did you just see what happened here? Like, <laughs> <laughs> If there is, they haven't invited me to be a part of it. I don't know. There's no fraternity or like some, some secret society, of, you know, <laughs> yeah. science secret society, SSS. There's nothing like that out no, there? No, no. And if there were, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, you seem like someone that enjoys this passion of teaching others and like you're you're an educator you know as one of the fields that you really are known for is you're you're an educator that's kind of how you're known for mainstream reputation wise do you enjoy just hanging out with like you mentioned like stand-up comedians where you have that you know ability to just educate and and to do what you love versus perhaps you know hanging out with other scientists like this the scientists like hanging out with each other at the end of the day i would very much prefer to hang out with fellow scientists mm. so so i'm neutral with regard to uh my role as an educator neutral in the sense that if i never sit up in front of another group again i i won't miss it but if i'm called because there's you know, it's like the bat signal, right? We need some science <laughs> in our town. And I have a speak person who manages my speaking calendar. They say, you, you know, the bat signal came from, and they'll name some, you know, off roads town. I say, okay, I'm there. I'll be there. <laughs> okay. So, so that's a, uh, I feel a sense of duty that when I'm called, I go to serve and I especially feel it with artists. If there's an artist that calls me up and wants to sprinkle their, what they do with a little bit of science, then they're calling me to try to make it accurate. Yeah. I mean, what an honor that is. Mm -hmm. uh, artists, I think, hold the soul of civilization. They capture the civilization that we always want to have, I think, mm. and or should have had. And they do it. They capture it in their storytelling, in their sculptures, in their artwork. And so when they when I get a call, that's why I have a cameo in six feature length movies. It's and it's it's and by the way, the cameo has to make some sense, right? Yeah. I'm not I'm not a street vendor, right? Or a, <laughs> or a, you know 
or a politician. I, 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 there's something sciency about the role, and and I'm there if it helps bring some authenticity to the storytelling, however exotic the story might be. Yeah. So 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 I would always rather be in the lab at all times. Mm. Yeah. But as, as long as I have something to contribute, like I have a podcast, for example, that I do invest time, a Star Talk podcast, and I do write books. I do invest that time. Um, but beyond that, practically everything else, I'd be just as content staying home with my wife and you know, catching a movie uh, or streaming a TV series or, or or we're both foodies, so we go out to a, a nice restaurant where right. the food is slightly too expensive, but maybe there's something great there. That you... <laughs> yeah, you're just enjoying your life at this point, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. So I, I would much prefer different. that than going on the road giving talks, but I will do so if I'm asked and if I'm yeah. and there's that need. Like I said, it's like the bat signal in the sky. In fact, it's a it's the symbol for pie. <laughs> <laughs> and are you like doing research or any any digging deep into any particular topics these days that are interesting for you? Or yeah, yeah. So lately, I assume you mean scientific research. So yeah, so yeah. lately, I've been doing very public things. So finishing books, book projects, uh, some filming projects uh, with Star Talk. And so that's occupying essentially 100% of my time. But I have this fantasy, however delusional it is, that I will, uh, enough other people show up on this sci-ed landscape. And there are many there now. I mean, the, the I, I made a list, I got about 20 people who are who are on Twitch or Facebook or, or Instagram and post videos of them doing cool sciencey things at home. And they each have a personality, uh, and they're, they're unique in their in the room. And so, I, if that continues, then I can just sort of slowly close up shop, and while well, no one notices, mm. and then you have exit a Twitch channel back, right now. And, and, and exit the back door and go to the Bahamas. That's where you can find me. <laughs> I feel like though, just laying in the beach for you is not going to do it. Like I feel like you you are constantly going to need something to keep your mind alert. Yes, but it won't be reaching the public. It'll be doing some other thinking about the universe. That's where the the research would kick back in. Sorry, the Bahamas. Then I go to the lab. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, what are the particular things that you're thinking about right now? Like maybe we can dig into that a little bit. Oh, so yeah, I'd have to get back in. But there are a lot of obscure, unsolved problems in astrophysics that the public wouldn't know or care about, yeah. right? But if you're into astrophysics, it's really an amazing thing, and you can hold a seminar, and people will be wrapped with their attention span, will be like all in on it. Um, you know, things like um, the formation of black holes and all the various ways you can do that, the formation of galaxies. Each galaxy seems to have a really supermassive black hole, but what came first? Did the black hole nucleate the galaxy, or did the galaxy feed a, th a monster in the middle that became a black hole? There are a lot of sort of unanswered questions like that that won't that, completely destabilize our understanding of the universe, but they're, they're holes in the tapestry that we're weaving that, that require attention. Yeah, yeah. And has anything changed with the advent of, like, space travel and the you know companies like SpaceX where 
obviously black holes might be out of the question there, but are there things that are opening up in terms of research and possibilities now that there's accessibility to going into space? Have you thought about going to space and taking one of those trips yeah, that so people it, are going to? What matters is what you mean by the word space. So the billionaire boys club, right? The <laughs> yes, Branson yes. Bezos billionaires, they who went into suborbital trajectories, those are the first two and the three that we've experienced recently. Those first two, you want to get a sense of how high above Earth's surface they were. Uh, if you take a schoolroom globe, uh, shrink Earth to that size, now how high up would they be? They're the thickness of two dimes above the surface. So for you to ask, now that billionaires are going to space, how does that improve my understanding of the universe? Yeah. This It's very hard to think of this as going into space. And even the Elon Musk flight, which was authentically orbital, right, they spent three days in orbit with his all-civilian crew. Uh, he's about a centimeter above Earth's surface. Right. So, yes, we've all been convinced. We've all been you know, duped into calling that space. But as an astrophysicist, there's no way I can think of that as space. Right. But SpaceX as a company, you know, commercial flights or that aside, they're they're actually going there. Right. So is there going where they're going up higher than the, the orbit that you're talking? They about, went to right? one centimeter above the Earth's surface. Even SpaceX not taking civilians, but just like the, the, the ships itself. Well, so first of all, uh, most of the ships launched by SpaceX that are not otherwise deploying satellites are bringing things like cargo to the space station, for example. Space station is three-eighths of an, a little less than a centimeter above the Earth's surface. That's the space station. Space station. And uh, their latest flight went about 350 miles up. It's higher than the space station. So that gets them to about a centimeter. And I would say the value here is not how does this contribute to science? How does it contribute to a brand new economy of space tourism? How often do you get to see the birth of an entire industry? I think that's what we're witnessing here. Now, if that makes making space vehicles cheaper, and in my field, we need a space vehicle that'll get us to Mars or the moon or beyond, or asteroids or comets to do science, and now Lockheed Martin, who built something, or SpaceX, who built rockets of a certain design for these other purposes, turns out that's useful for my needs? There it is. So be it. What, as what has been the case from the beginning, science typically piggybacks other projects that have higher financial priority uh, in either culturally or geopolitically. Mm. Even Darwin's Voyage of the Beagle, you know, we think of that he took this boat to the Galapagos. That boat had other objectives. It, it wasn't for him. He, he's, I don't want to call him a stowaway, but he was, <laughs> the ship was not designed to take him. He, he joined a ship that had a whole other agenda for what its voyage was going to be about. And so, uh, and you look at the Apollo missions. We sent nine missions to the moon. 27 astronauts orbited the moon. And... Okay, uh, how many scientists were on, among the 27? Oh, uh, one, one. Oh, and which mission was that on? The last mission, okay? There's the science priority of going to the moon. Mm. 
So let's not kid ourselves that these activities are driven by curiosity in space. No, uh, it's geopolitical, cultural, or otherwise economic. That can drive such expenditures as well. But why scientists know and understand this fact, and we take what we can get. Got it, got it. And you don't think that's going to change in the near future? In what way? Just based on, well, look, us prioritizing scientists and science over... I don't, okay, I, I don't see why that would be any different than how it has ever been. Don't you want to say that human beings of the 21st century are fundamentally different in their values and priorities and how they spend money from all civilizations and humans who have ever preceded us? Then, yes, maybe we'll change our priorities. But I'm not convinced of this. And I did a lot of work on this in one of my books was called, well, two books. One was called Space Chronicles, Facing yeah. the Ultimate Frontier. But more specifically, a book called Accessory to War, The Unspoken Alliance between astrophysics and the military. And this chronicles this long history of how the value of astrophysics was established not because governments gave a rat's ass about the universe in and of itself, but that knowing the sky was fundamental to navigation and navigation was fundamental to military dominance, especially naval dominance. Yes. So that's all in the book. So I'm not... I have no illusions about this. Elon Musk says he wants to put astronauts on Mars. That is not going to happen. You don't think so? Well, no. So here's how it will happen. Okay. It'll go something like this. Uh, China decides to put military bases on Mars. Right. And I joke, they don't even have to do it. They just have to leak a memo saying they're going to do it. Okay. Then we freak out. We say, we've got to put bases on Mars too, because we're better at reacting than proacting. So then, but then we look in our arsenal, we don't have any spaceships to go to Mars. And then Elon says, I have one, and he rolls out his spaceship, and then the government pays Elon to use his spaceship to take American astronauts, military uh, uh, personnel to Mars. So yes, in that way, Elon would be first on Mars, but not because it was a mission of exploration and discovery, and it was a beautiful, nice next step to take. It would be because geopolitical forces required it, sure. needed it. And it will make it clear that the, uh, it would make it clear that he would not, he would still not be creating a space industry. It's still a space program if our mm -hmm. tax money is paying for that to happen. Right, right. I think the real hope for a space industry is in the low earth orbit tourism. I think there's an unlimited future. demand as you start dropping the price for seats on ships that can see, you know, uh, 18 sunrises in a day. Yeah. What do you think prices will be in the next 20 years to go to space or to go to orbit? Sorry. I'd like to see them get down to maybe 50000 20000 $10,000. Uh, I think a perfect price point would be 5000 because yeah. ask yourself, a family of four vacation to Disney World, right? So there's the airfare, the hotel, the food, the park admissions, all of this. You're probably dropping near $5,000. Now, add up multiple vacations like that over a couple of years. So you say, okay, I'm going to save four vacations to do this. And maybe that gets you to 10000 or to 20000 And maybe that's enough. I would save up four vacations or even more to take that trip. Sure. 
And then you do it, and then it's the trip of a lifetime. And what is it right now? Like a like five hundred. It's over a hundred thousand. It's over a hundred thousand. Over a hundred thousand. Yeah. So, so there are a lot of rich people out there. So, let's see, let's go back 10, 15 years. The seat went for twenty million dollars. Who buys that? Billionaires buy it. Yeah. Seat goes for ten million dollars. Billionaires still buy it, but now poor billionaires can buy it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> the, the C grade billionaires. Right? Yeah, just entry <laughs> level billionaires. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you keep doing this. Scums. You keep doing it. And then you take it down to um, the 10 million, then to 1 million, then to half a million, 100,000. And I think in the 20 years that you're suggesting, the price will come very low. Low enough so that I think you will have met someone who has done it. Let's remember that when airplanes were invented, the very first people who flew were rich people. And they were also like the first ones to die. <laughs> okay. But that's right. Not to make fun of that, but that's the reality of doing something first that's dangerous. But uh, imagine telling the Wright brothers after flying only the wingspan of a 757 in their first flight, telling them, do you realize one day we will have an airplane that has a wingspan of your first flight? <laughs> <laughs> and that airplane can fly, you know, to Europe and around the world. And, and they probably look at you like, no, no, this is just kind of a hobby. This is a toy. This is a. What was the time span? It was of like. Oh, it was rapid. Brothers. Rapid. So, so we, 1930 to 1933, we go from the Wright brothers flying 120 feet to um, Amelia Earhart crossing the Atlantic solo. That's 30 19. years. And then you go another 15 years, we're breaking the sound barrier. And then another 10 years after that, Sputnik gets launched. And another 10 years after that, we are walking on the moon. This is fast. This is might be overestimating it. of exploration and discovery. Correct. So for you to say, let's think of what will happen by 2050. No, you can't. Nice. <laughs> Just give up. Yeah. Give up. That is crazy, right? Just how fast things are moving these days. Yeah. Um, and I imagine there's going to be other platforms built on top where you're not just going up and down like a, like a, like a Disney ride. Uh, is, is, do you, like, what do you envision for the space industry, at least commercially? Like, do you see people doing stuff up there as well and being transported I, I'd rather speak out? broadly and say, yeah. I look forward to the day when the solar system becomes our collective backyard. And we can mine asteroids at will. We can deflect them if they come in harm's way. We can have tourist jaunts to the moon. We can look for life on Mars, visit moons, ride a comet. And so think of it as not, what's the next thing we should do in space? Is it go to Mars? No, it's let's build the capacity to do anything we want in space. Mm. So you'd visit the warehouses. I need three solid rocket boosters, two, two main engines, and three of these. Boom, that gets you to the to the uh, far side of Mars or whatever. I mean, and then, so each person would have different needs. I need, I want to launch communication satellites. That'd be these rockets, right? And that's the way where you turn the solar system into your backyard. Right. And then, right. then it's subject to the creativity of whoever uh, thinks stuff up and wants to do it. And I'm quite sure the world's first trillionaire will be the person who first mines asteroids for their natural resources. Probably Bezos. <laughs> that's more his vision right his vision like elon elon musk's vision is he's he he's dead set on going to mars and us being a multi species 
Whereas Bezos seems to be creating more platform for people to do other things in space and if more like what you're describing. Way. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it does seem that way. That's right. Uh, I think Elon Musk is, he's, he's on a quest. Yeah. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a quest, an exploration quest, whereas Bezos is, how can I make money doing this? Right. But you need a little of both, I think, yeah. when you're advancing a frontier. Yeah. And why Mars? Like, um, for people that aren't aware, like, why not, you know, Venus and Moon and, and particularly with Mars? Like what, what's the breakdown there of why well, Mars, Mars rotates once in about 24 hours? Its axis is tipped like ours is, which means it goes through seasons as we do. Mars has polar ice caps. Um, Venus, you would vaporize within a few seconds of landing there. You, a physical human being, would vaporize. The, the runaway greenhouse effect is scorching. Whereas on Mars, it's very cold, but it's not something a, 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 a spacesuit can protect you from. And Mars is relatively close. It's been the object of our literary and scientific affection for more than a century, ever since H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. I put sort of Mars on the map. And so there are a lot of attractive... Mars clearly has evidence of having once had running water. And water is kind of important to life as we know it. So Mars has a lot of things going for it relative to other destinations. That, that's why... That's why... It shows up at the top of anybody's list as a next destination. But like I said, I want it all to be our next destination. Sure. Yeah. And gravity levels are also quite similar. Um, well, no, they're 40% of what we have here. That's better than the moon, where it's only yeah. 15, 16%. Yeah. And how, how does that work? Like, so so Mars is, is they got 24 hours and like what, 40, 40 minutes or something like that extra than, than what we have. Like, if you Yeah, I forgot that, what it is, but it's about 24 hours. I mean, it's close enough. Yeah. Does that have any effect to like, this is like a, a science debunk that I wanted to ask you, which is like, you see a lot of space movies and people are staying, you know, younger, longer, like that, that obviously the time span is a little bit different. So if we were on Mars and they have 40 extra minutes in a span of that time, does that mean less time has gone by for that no. person? If they were- No, time has nothing Earth? to do, actual time has nothing to do with what's reckoning it just because mars has an extra 40 minutes in a day relative to earth it doesn't mean you're living less or living more you just count the minutes of your life it's got nothing to do with how many times mars has rotated or revolved around the earth people say wow if i were on saturn i'd only be three years old but right. i'm 60 or whatever i forgot how many earth years a saturn year is so it's yeah. fun to talk that way with with kids right because their birthday is such a thing they look forward to yeah. but uh, if you want to know how old you are, count the seconds. And we keep track of seconds with atomic time that have nothing to do with rotating planets. Got it. So I'm not going to live longer by moving to Mars. I almost, I almost was going to buy my ticket now. Uh, well, well there's, there's less gravity. So things about your life that would reduce your life expectancy that are gravity dependent could have you live a little bit longer. But hmm. uh, otherwise, uh, no. In what sense? Oh, so for example, um, let's say you're getting older and you're in, you're in good health, but you're just getting a little slow, and then you fall and break your hip on Earth. 
Well, that's yeah. sometimes the beginning of the end, right? And then now you're no longer in shape because you used to walk every day. Now you can't walk every day. And now your circulatory system is, goes and everything. All right. On Mars, if you fall, you're less likely to break your hip because you'll fall more slowly. Mm-hmm. You'll hit the ground with less impact. You'll have more time to react to having fallen. So there are things you can do in a lower gravity that are in your interest, in the, in, in the interest of your survival, that wouldn't happen on a higher gravity. Huh. So there's almost like new industries or specific things that you can allocate to doing on Mars that would be more beneficial just based on gravity alone, let's say in this case. I don't yeah, know. I, I think we'll be way past that. I mean, th- th- these are sensible thoughts for sure, but uh, we'll have access to the human genome. And if you want to adjust something for living on Mars, we just go tweak it with CRISPR. And mm. I, I, I don't see, I don't see why you'd have to completely readjust your lifestyle. Yeah. Have you also gotten into genetic engineering, like stem cell therapy or anything like that? Well, no, not as a scientist, but I think about it often. And I think about the ethical, uh, the missing tandem ethical perspectives that need to be there as we discover what power we have over our own genome. I'd like to think that the first things we solve are the, are the congenital terminal illnesses that you can get and just sort of wipe that clean, like clear it out of our species. And that would be cool if you could do that. And if you did that first, uh, of course, what happens next? People want designer babies, right? I want my baby to be good at, in the piano or in dance or basketball. Uh, I, I don't know where that'll go, but I, like I said, I think we'll need sort of tandem. There has to be an adult in the room <laughs> next time you have those conversations. Yeah, yeah. You feel that should be regulated, basically. Um, regulated feels so harsh. Uh, I think there needs to be guidance regarding it. Mm-hmm. And it's possible to, quote, regulate something just by public sentiment being held against it. Yeah. And you know, social pressures can be quite strong. And that would be an ideal occasion to do that. Right. But I imagine if, I mean, let's say an example like China, they're, they're going to be a little bit looser on that, I would imagine. And it would just be a situation where most people, if they do want to get it, they're going to find a way to get it done anyways, right? So it only really works if the whole world agrees to what the rules yeah. are. Otherwise, you yeah. get circumvented. Right. Right. And how, how does that work? Like, how would you get an entire world? Like, would you have to involve the UN at that point? Yeah, I wish the UN was more potent. Uh, rather, I wish the UN was as potent as we all thought it would and should be, should and would have been. Yeah. Uh, back when it was uh, erected and conceived, you know, after the League of Nations, we have the UN is there in New York, so we have daily reminders of what responsibility we have as a city to host such important international debates and conversations. So I don't see why we couldn't come up with a sort of an international treaty of the sanctity, if you want to pick a word, of the human genome. And beyond curing us of disease, you just let it alone, let it, let it be whatever it is. And we'll see, I don't, you know, maybe that advice would become outdated at some point. Okay. Because if we're going to say, let's cure disease and 50 years ago, 50, uh, yeah, 
50 years ago in the American Psychiatric Association books defining abnormalities of the human species, homosexuality was one of them. It was considered an, ab an abnormality of, of, of the mind, okay? And it wouldn't be until 1987 where they removed that word from their dictionary of abnor abnormalities. But let's imagine you had this power in the 1950s or 60s and there's you know, a, a, a gay person in the room. You'd say, we have to fix that. We have judged that that is a problem that needs fixing. That's a weird power to have. Weird and potentially dangerous if wielded in ways that don't have proper foresight. So that's why it needs a lot of thinking in tandem with it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know who is even going to be the right person to be in charge of this. Like, no, it wouldn't be a person. It would be, you'd have, you gather people who have yeah. perspectives and expertise who then contribute to the table. You're thinking, it has to be a leader, and that leader, no, no. It has to be multiple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. multiple countries, multiple philosophies. You put it all on, there's the philosophy. <laughs> you put it all on the table. <laughs> <It's useful. laughs> yes. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, even, even like adding that top of something like Neuralink, that's, you know, fastly growing and people are talking about, there's just going to be this divide of superhumans that have, you know, knowledge at top of their fingertips where they have ultimate brain power and, and, and knowledge versus regular humans. And it's going to be similar to the way we see humans versus like chimpanzees these days. And just the rate of that increasing. Yeah. You're reading too much science fiction. I think. <laughs> I hope so. Cause that's so, scary so, stuff, man. Like, so I, the history of connecting sort of electronics to the human body, uh, that's been, um, the best solutions historically have been just simple mechanical solutions, right? So uh, what's a good example there? Uh, uh, what's a good, okay, so when jets started getting really fast, fighter jets, and they had to do a, multi, a high G turn out of a situation, that high G turn would, would pull blood from their brains down into their lower extremities. And this is bad, you don't want that to happen. So they said, well, let's devise a pill where, where you, your brain doesn't have to consume as much oxygen and still yet still function as it needs to because it's an oxygen deprivation at that point. And so, this, they, so biologists were coming up with a solution and then engineers said, let's just give them a pressure suit where it feels the high Gs, it squeezes their legs, preventing blood from ever getting there in the first place and therefore doesn't leave your brain. And that's, that's what they use today. And it's simple and we don't have to change your body chemistry to make it happen. Okay. So I suspect that this neural link where you're saying, let me connect my brain neurologically to the internet. Really? Is that really much better than me pulling out my smartphone and typing? I guess it's faster. Okay. So you'll do it in a matter of seconds and I'll take me 20 seconds. You'll do it in three seconds. You know, I have the 17 seconds. I, I could do that without USB plugging this into the base of my neck. So, so, uh, I, so I don't fear, I don't see, and because I don't see it, I don't fear that future. Even though many people who are quite expert on this see that yeah. as inevitable. And of course you're referring to the singularity. Yeah.
Yeah. So you don't believe in that. You don't, you don't believe. I'm not in convinced. It's not belief. It's just, I'm not convinced that that's the direction it will go. Huh? I mean, the Elon Musk's theory is that we're technically already cyborgs, meaning that if someone loses their phone, this feels like they just lost their right arm and we're always already attached. And I guess VR is kind of the next right, step. But we're not biologically attached. We might be emotionally attached, but it's an object you pick up that does the work for you. Are you going to say, come under the scalpel and I want to inject this into your base, your brainstem? I say, no, thank you. I'm keeping the smartphone. Got it. Got it. Even like our grandchildren, you don't feel they're going to be adopting this where they just don't know. Just because something is possible like. doesn't mean it will happen in that way. That, that's my only point. Yeah. The, the, what is the motivation for that? Okay. I'll, I'll give another example that people just get wrong. You go back in time, where uh, how people imagined the future, and they imagined there'd be robots in every home. Okay, go back to the Jetsons. There's the maid. The robot is wearing a maid skirt, which is I always thought weird. And the maid looks like a portly maid. All right. So why? What's going on? What's the maid doing? The maid is pushing buttons. Yeah. Right. The maid is pushing buttons in the washing machine and pushing buttons in the kitchen. Well. Do you even need buttons? If you don't need buttons, then you don't need the maid to push the buttons. So do I need a robot that gets in my car and drives my car? Or is the car itself a robot? So I see the future of this as tasks and needs will be fulfilled by robots as they are so much today. And to say, let's get the one super robot that does everything better than every other robot. Who's going to do that? How do you even do that? Is that robot going to make coffee as good as my programmed coffee maker? I don't think so. Is that same robot now going to drive my car? How's it going to do that? What, what, how, so the practicality of it is all I'm addressing here. Yeah. Not that it wouldn't ever or couldn't happen, but will it? And yeah. I, I'm not as convinced as others. Yeah, I don't know if you looked into the Tesla robots, but I guess they're starting off with just more basic tasks like grain groceries where like you don't really need creativity. We already have robots. We have a robot that beat us at chess, at Go, at, oh, oh excuse me, they're computers that are seated. Fine. They're still doing things that we previously did, but they do it better than us. They're all, ro the Hubble telescope is a robot. There's nobody up there turning knobs. Uh, and there are modes that go into auto, I mean, it's, it's all of these machines are robots. And if you had told someone 70 years ago how infused automated robotic phenomena are in our lives, they'd say, wow, wow, that's amazing. I guess the robots are all intelligent now. And we have to say, well, no, even though it beat me at chess and at Go and at, and at um, uh, Jeopardy, and it can solve a Rubik's Cube in four seconds, no, it's still not smarter than I am. Of course it's smarter. It's smarter in any way that matters that it was programmed to be smarter. Yeah. If you're going to keep shifting the goalpost about how you're going to describe um, AI, then that's evidence that we're living with it and it's not getting to where you think it is. It's, it's yeah. going to be where we're all going to die. <laughs> what was like the first coin popularization of AI? Like, What was the first AI that was properly, uh, you know, recognized as... Well, this is the Turing test. So uh, when I was in college, as old as I am, 
I took a computer science class, which was new at the time. There were no computer science departments. This was a class offered in the applied math department. And people were saying, what, you want to take a class on computers? Computers is a, is a machine, right? That's like taking a class, a, a college class on, on, on what? On, on coffee makers, right? Yeah, so it was, philosophy. It was, <laughs> no, <laughs> there was a lot of sort of resistance to it, but yeah. uh, people in the know knew that this was the future. All right, that's where I learned about the Turing test, and we interacted with a program called LIZA, L-I-Z-A, I think it was named, mm, Okay. and it's a program that parses your speech in ways that a psychologist might, okay? And so... You so ask me a, ask me any question. First, acknowledge me and then ask me a question. And my name Ideal. is Eliza. Go. What did you eat for breakfast? I I don't have to eat breakfast. I'm a computer. What did you eat for breakfast? Okay. So Eliza's smart enough to take your sentence and put it back to you. Okay. And putting it back to you, now you say, well, I had uh, eggs and bagels and, and whatever. And so, oh, that's good. That's a healthy breakfast because it can calculate calories and mm. nutrition and all the like. Um, and then you'll say, I'm sad. And Eliza would say, uh, tell me more. And you say, well, I was just at home. And, uh, so uh, what? what's your relationship with your parents or with your mother, right? And so so there's there's a there's a catalog of responses. And the point is, if I didn't tell you it was a computer, you would not know at the time, this is in the, how old I am, 1970s, at the time you have no idea it was a computer because it had good enough language skills to come back to you with questions and it just sounded like an interesting friend, a new friend you just met. Okay. Did it have like the Siri voice, like the robotic, like, hi, I am Liza. Uh, this is before, before computers had voices. <laughs> okay. well, you're saying this is text. This is all text. Just, yeah, of course it's text. Okay, okay, okay. okay. This is all... I'm spoiled by this new advanced technology. Yeah, right? this is all text. <laughs> is Excuse me, I should have made this clear. It's yes, text yes. printed on a monitor, okay? And before that, it was on a, a readout, a, a teletype. <laughs> right. Okay, because that's how old I am. Point is, the... At the time, you would have said, wow, this is true artificial intelligence. I don't even know that this person isn't human. And nowadays, we look back and see how quaint that experiment was. But if you told them, you know, in the future, AI will beat us at chess and go and drive better than us and more safely and do all of these things, and it won't even involve a robot that you think we're going to have to live with, they'll say, wow. Might that be the end of the world if humans are no longer in charge of everything? I could say we have these computers controlling our nuclear power plants. Whoa. We have computers guiding missiles. Whoa. So I don't fear it. I think we will apply it to our actual needs. And beyond that, we move on. What do you think are the skill sets that younger people need to learn today? Because there's this fear that we're going to be replaced. And that's real, right? Yeah, that's the wrong Millions question. Of jobs. That's the, okay. I think that's the wrong question. Okay. Not that's about skill right sets. Okay. Skill set goes obsolete every three or four years. 
Uh, you want to be trained how to think and how to learn. You need the pliability and flexibility of encountering new ideas. And if you are turned off by new ideas, the world will leave you behind. This is the difference in the workplace between the person who is handed a task that they're not trained for, have never seen. And I can think of one of two imaginable replies. One of them is, I'm not paid to do this. I'm not trained to do this. That's one reply. Another reply is, wow, I've never seen this problem before. I'll get right on it. So it's with what enthusiasm do you bring to something you've never seen or heard of before? Right. right. And that's what you need in school so that by the time you get out of school four years later and maybe with graduate school another couple of years on top of that, you will have the capacity to adapt. And how do you personally approach learning new things that you're not aware of, that you have no knowledge of? Oh, What's I'd say, process? oh my gosh, that's cool. I never knew that. Let me learn more about it. Oh, yeah. You just dig right in. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's deeply embedded curiosity. Mm. Is that something and you can And unfortunately, teach? that's not taught in school. In school, you're just taught to learn stuff. And that doesn't feed curiosity. It feeds it a little bit, but I'm talking about curiosity beyond what you already know. Mm -hmm. After the class is over and you've taken your final exam, are you still curious about what you learned? Because if you're not, the school failed. Got it. Got it. And how do you embed that to people to be more curious? Because that seems like the root of what you're getting. Yeah, I think you can teach it differently so that you don't teach things. You teach ideas. You don't give recipes for how to do an experiment. You let people plug wires in whatever way they want and, and just see what happens. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. there's the exploration part of curiosity that I think is, you know, it's been said, we said it in Cosmos, I think uh, Andrean penned this first, is that if you think of, uh, she's a widow of Carl Sagan, who's the yeah. secret sauce of all the three Cosmoses, two of which I had the honor of hosting after Carl Sagan's original in 1980. But she speaks of uh, curiosity and wonder as the twin engines of exploration and discovery. So if you come out of school and you no longer wonder about anything, then the school squashed that because every kid is born with it, as far as I can tell. Yeah. One of the great advice that I've heard to inspire that curiosity is just to embrace quitting. So if you're reading a book and you're not enjoying it in the first two chapters, don't be afraid to let that book go and find something else that's actually going to inspire you. But it seems like the way the school system is set up right now is you have to go through these four years. You have to go through four months and then take that test or else you fail. So we don't really encourage just iterations and experimenting as much as, you know, the way the real world actually works. Yeah, what I have found, and I have the luxury of not having to do this in a formal educational setting. I'm doing it by definition in informal settings. I can cherry pick the universe and bring that to an audience. And I've already prejudged what's cool, what isn't, what'll make you smile, what'll make you laugh. And I do that, put it all together. And now you are so interested, you want to learn all the bits and pieces that I didn't put in. That's your own curiosity carrying it forward. I think if instead I said, I require that you know all these little bits and pieces, otherwise it's not a complete curriculum, yeah, you're going to be bored to tears. 
and it's not a fun learning experience. Right. And I don't think it's disingenuous to cherry pick the cool things because I can tell you something really cool and that could lead you to the next question. And you start digging in deeper yourself. And what school systems are not doing are creating lifelong learners, which they should because you're gonna spend much more time not in school than in school. Mm. Mm. And that seems to be, if I was to kind of pick, cherry pick the skill that you're world-class at, it, it seems to be that you're an amazing communicator. Is that, is that something that you've had to teach and work on yourself or is that just something that you were born with? Uh, so I, care. If you want to ask what I'm born with, I don't know. I don't know what I'm born with. It seems to me if I were born with it, then people very early on would have said, hey, look what he's got. And at no time did any teacher ever single me out for special uh, notice. Ever. That has never happened. I'm where I am, not because of teachers, but in spite of them. Okay. And I don't say that often because it sounds very mean spirited, but it's true. Okay, how many people would be scientists today were it not for a really boring science teacher or a teacher that sees their class as some kind of mill that they put you through and only if you survive do you continue. That kind of attitude towards learning, I think, is, is ultimately going to bite us in the ass because many more people could be interested in this stuff than are. Mm -hmm. And so I invested time and energy thinking about how you think about things. What are the receptors you have? Uh, and I'm communicating with you and I say, okay, let me say this because you're going to receive it that way. Oh, by the way, I, by the way, I also know what you care about in pop culture, what music you're listening to. If I do my homework in advance, what music, what concerts you go to, what TV shows you watch, what movies excite you. And these become part of my toolkit to draw from when I'm communicating the science. Mm -hmm. And I think humor also matters. People, when they smile for learning something, they'll come back for more. Yeah. And by the way, all of that is the, is the recipe, if I can call it that, in the, my podcast, Star Talk. Mm. My co-host is a stand-up comedian who's also smart and insightful. And Who's your co-host? Uh, Chuck Nice. Chuck and Nice, okay. Yeah, you can look him up. He, he's a funny guy. I think he's... I'm happy to say I think he's funniest when he's with us on the show, uh, <laughs> but he also d uh, gets around and does yeah. uh, comedy clubs and things. But my point is, if you look at pop culture, humor, and science, we weave those three together to make a package where you are smiling, it's relevant to you because we come in from the pop culture side of it, and you learn something new that you might just want to tell someone else yeah, or continue to learn more of when we're done. One of the best things that I uh, that, that I heard you say is that many people ask, talking about the wrong questions is like, the wrong question is the meaning of life. You create the meaning of your own life. And it seems like that's what is going to inspire a lot of people today. I mean, how do you want people to remember you? So first of all, I, I don't think I ever said the question, what is the meaning of life is, is a bad question or a wrong question. I might have said that, but what I really meant was, that if that's how you think of the meaning of life, you may never find it. Right. So maybe a better question is, how do, I how do I create meaning in life? You can create meaning for yourself or even especially for others where their lives are different, improved, better, enriched 
because you exist in their life in some way. It could be someone you've never met that you helped across the street or that you uh, helped enlighten them in something that they were struggling with. It could be anything. Yeah. For me, that's the meaning of meaning. It's what have you done to enhance your life so that you can be better at this kind of thinking tomorrow than you are today. And that someone can say that their lives have been improved because of what you did today. Their lives improved tomorrow because of what you did today for them. To me, that's meaning. Now, you want to know how I want to be remembered? I don't, I, I don't care. I don't even remember it at all. Hmm. In fact, if I'm remembered, it means I failed at something. Okay, so if I teach you something about anything in the universe, and then you go to a friend and say, here's something I just learned, that blah de blah de blah de blah de blah and then your friend says, wow, wow, how do you know that? Well, then you say, well, Tyson told me. If you have to reference me to tell someone else something you learned, then you really didn't learn it. You're just reciting what I told you. I accept as the task that when you learn something, you take ownership of what you just learned. You take ownership of it. And when you take ownership of it, it no longer references me. You then take that to your next person and they say, well, why is this true? Oh, because here's why. And then you give a whole explanation of greenhouse gases or, or black hole collisions or whatever else it is. And then the knowledge lives on and I become irrelevant to it. And every time that happens, I have succeeded. And as a result, I don't need to re be remembered. It'll bury me in an unmarked grave so I can be food, food for the flora and fauna once again. <laughs> A beautiful set, except for that last visual image. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's a good way to close it off here. Uh, where can people find out you know, where do you want people to go to? Star Talk is obviously the one that we talked a little bit about. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that's a, um, we put a lot of effort. There's about a dozen of us, you know, producers, writers. We, there's a lot going, you see me on the podcast, but there's a lot of behind oh, the scenes going on there, of course. Um, and the latest book is you know, a pocket tour, a, a brief welcome to the universe, a pocket-sized tour. That one I'm quite proud of because, as I had described, um, my two co-authors, uh, fellow um, uh, members of the teaching faculty at Princeton when I was there, we co-taught this class. And that book is the very essence of the larger book from which it's drawn. And the larger book is the textbook. And getting back to your point, no, I'm not going to require that you learn every single thing that needs to be known just so I can say the syllabus is complete. I'm here to excite you so that you want to learn more. Mm. And what the pocket size guy does is, I think, say, wow, this is cool. This is cool. And it's this much. And, you, and then, I, then we just made you hungry. Yes. And now, you, now you, want to, you want more. Maybe you'll go buy the textbook or buy other books or, or watch a, a fun movie that we referenced or watch a documentary. So... Uh, so these are the, so that that book happens to be out like right now at this second. Yep. It was just Welcome released. The universe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Honestly, I wish more people adopted your method of teaching because it's, it's clearly works. And uh, yeah, the, the system is really outdated. So I highly recommend people check out Welcome to the Universe. 
Star Talk. We're going to link all that below. Neil, thank you so much for your time. This has been excellent. Amazing. Excellent. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.